0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Musicians. Well, good morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? Am I on? Okay. It's good to see everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. I trust that uh, you've got your reservations made for where you're having lunch or dinner tonight. If you don't have a maid yet, you can forget it. You're not going to get one. Uh, some of you have found that out, the long, long waits at places uh, tonight. But it is, uh, it is good to see you on this Valentine's morning and uh, hope and pray that it's a special day for you and your loved ones. I'm going to bring a message this morning out of 1 Corinthians 13. If you would find 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read the entire chapter. And based on the old hallmark saying, we're going to look this morning at the subject matter when you care enough to send the very best. When you care enough to send the very best, because we know that Jesus perfectly exemplifies what is being spoken of here in chapter 13. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And I am actually going to be reading from the NIV translation this morning mainly because of the way they handle verse 3. It's generally agreed now among scholars that the way the NIV, 2011 NIV handles verse 3 is probably the correct way. And so because of that difference there, I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking and is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together, please. Father, we're so grateful for these words in the inspired scripture God this is your word and I pray that your word would shape our lives and conform us more and more daily to the image of Christ we thank you for your purposes in us to make us more like Jesus and father we see a passage here that we cannot live out without the supernatural power of Christ within us. I pray that the power and presence of your Holy Spirit would help us each day that these words would not simply be words on paper, but reality in our lives. And Lord, as we practice this, we are reminded of what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13. That if we love one another and we love one another like this, then the world will know that we are your disciples. May that be the case. May we understand as we live out this passage that we will be more effective in our witness at pointing others to Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I mentioned, the Hallmark Company uh, used to have the advertisement slogan, When you care enough to send the very best. Folks, I don't know if you're like me, but when you walk down the aisles now of the grocery stores or drug stores or Walmart looking for the perfect greeting card... I'm not sure from what I read on the cards anymore that they're giving us their very best. Some of these companies need some better writers. You know, I received a humorous email related to this a number of years ago. Glenn Tucker sent me an email as he sends out a lot of funny emails to people in the church from his real estate office. And uh, he said that somebody in his office had pointed out when it came to uh, being a husband or being romantic that he was really a slug and needed to do better by Liz. And so he said, so here it goes, in celebration of Valentine's Day, I've decided to send Liz a point. And here it is, roses are red, violets are blue, I sell real estate and so do you. (laughs) I told Glenn he better keep his day job, but you know, I I liked Liz's response better. Here's what she wrote, some houses are red, some houses are blue. If you don't sell real estate, I'll probably sell you. Now, if we were looking for a Valentine's Day card from God, I I think 1 Corinthians 13 would fit the bill on that. And as I've already mentioned, what we really need to see is that only one, Jesus Christ, perfectly demonstrates what we see in this chapter. Nobody displays love quite like God, but of course in His display of love, He shows us the pattern that we are likewise to follow. Now you'll remember the situation at Corinth. Corinth was a very unhealthy church environment. There were divisions everywhere over personalities. They were chasing after certain personalities in the church that they preferred. They were also suing one another, taking one another to court. And Paul had to tell them how inappropriate that is in the body of Christ that it would be better for you to take a loss than to sell uh, Sue or brother or sister. There was rampant immorality in the church and they were also divided over gifts of the Spirit. They tended to like the sensational gifts more. Things like tongues and working of miracles and so forth. And all of that sets the stage for what we see here in chapter 13. But you know we really need to begin 13 with the end of chapter 12 where Paul says and now I will show you a more excellent way. The way of love is the more excellent way over all other ways of conducting ourselves. If we can get that right then these other things will fall into place. Now one scholar has said that this chapter is probably the greatest, strongest, and deepest, most profound thing that the Apostle Paul ever penned. And what we learn here as far as a central idea or central thing that we see in the text here is that in the life of the believer, in the life of the church, the most important thing is not the carrying out of gifts. But it is the practice of genuine Christian love. I hope you'll take notes with me this morning. And if you are, the first thing I want you to write down is the value of love. The value of love. Go back to verse 1 with me please. Because Paul says there, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's talking there about the value of love. Love is to be the reason. It's to be the driving force behind everything that we do. And so he sets up these various scenarios that he's talking about here. The tongues of men and of angels, the mountain-moving type faith, the the giving over our bodies to hardship and so forth. All of these scenarios, let's look at some of these. First of all, he talks about the tongues of men and of angels. We see the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2. And what we see there in Acts chapter 2 about different tongues is it's different languages. It's the ability to speak in a language that you've not studied, that you've not learned. It seems to have been a temporary gift, though certainly not everybody would agree with that. For the most part, it appears to have passed away though even before the New Testament was complete because you don't see it being discussed or present in any of the other letters. You don't see it in Romans, you don't see it in Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or for that matter anywhere else as you read through the New Testament. And so if it's so critical to being a believer as some charismatics today would have us to believe, we only see it at a couple of places in Acts where it's clear that language is being referred to and we see it being perverted in Corinth. In Acts, it was a sign that the gospel was meant for all people, just as Jesus stated in the Great Commission. It was also a sign to the unbelieving Jew that God was now extending the gospel to other people groups around the world who spoke different languages other than them that was the significance of it God was reaching all of those nations that had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost the way Jews would travel home for that particular festival because of the time of year it was at and the fair weather, travel was easier. And they would come in from all different parts of the Roman Empire where they were speaking different languages. And on the day of Pentecost, they were hearing the apostles preaching the gospel in their own languages. Again, symbolizing how the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. Now at car rent, they had perverted the gift, it would seem. And they had tried to turn it in to something personal to the individual believer. That it was sort of a private ecstatic utterance to build them up in some way. But he says here, what if I have the legitimate gift of tongues and could speak with the language of men and of angels? What he's describing here probably is somebody who has a very impressive command of language, somebody eloquent, somebody who's able to get up and mesmerize a crowd with their words. He might have had in the back of his mind somebody like Apollos. The early disciple Apollos is is one who was discipled. And he would sometimes travel with the Apostle Paul and he was an extremely eloquent man. There was nobody in Paul's circles that even could begin to preach or speak like Apollos could. And apparently he went to Corinth after Paul had been there and he had a very uh, fruitful ministry. And so Paul may be saying, if you can even speak like Apollos with the tongues of men and of angels and can mesmerize crowds with your messages, but you have not love, you're nothing. And then he mentions the gift of prophecy. This is the ability to know and declare the Word of God. It refers to the proclamation of the Word of God through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, before the canon of Scripture was completed, it was used in the sense of foretelling. To give revelations, the prophets or apostles giving new revelations from God. Thus says the Lord. Now today it's used more in the sense of forth In other words, forthtelling what's already written in God's Word because God's not writing new books of the Bible. Aren't you glad you don't have to order a new Bible on Amazon every month because that past month God's given new books to the Bible, new revelations? We believe the canon is complete now and so prophecy in the sense of foretelling what God has told us in his word Now, in chapter 12, verse 28, Paul refers to prophecy as one of the greater gifts. It's better to be able to proclaim what God has said in His Word to the whole body of Christ than to try to speak in an unknown tongue that maybe no one present will understand. You know, when I was a student at Wingate College one Sunday night, a friend of mine wanted me to go to a local church and tell him. Some of the college students were going there, and he wanted me to tell him what I thought. Uh, It it was a charismatic church. There There was virtually no preaching of the Word that night. In fact, I don't remember any preaching of the Word that night. Other than the music, the whole emphasis was the preacher was down front trying to get people down front who didn't have the gift of tongues to come front, come down front, people to lay hands on them. And he was coaching people on how they could speak in tongues. Well, that seems to be the very opposite of what Paul is trying to say here. To not do something like that. And then we see the special knowledge and mysteries. This refers to the kind of person whom God gives to the church that everybody looks to as having a good head on their shoulders. It's the the kind of person that when the church is facing huge decisions, they seem to be able to offer words of wisdom and good sense. Discernment may be a good way to define it. It reminds me of Joseph in the book of Genesis. God gave Joseph this special kind of knowledge and discernment over mysteries. And then Paul mentions here mountain-moving type of faith. He's not referring to saving faith, but somebody who not only has saving faith, but miracle-working type of faith. The phrase able to move mountains became proverbial for mountain-working faith. We still say things like this today. So-and-so has that mountain-moving type of faith. And this is the type of person that we like to go to with our prayer request. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for this situation? And then he mentions people with gifts of giving. And there's a word here that has to do with the idea of a small little morsel. It has to do with the idea of giving up one's wealth in small amounts. You divide up your wealth in small amounts and the tense is significant too. In a once-for-all type action, you take all of your assets, all of your wealth, liquidate everything and in bite-sized chunks so you can help the most amount of people... You, you give it out like that. Folks, on the surface, it's hard to imagine somebody doing that without love being the motive. But I want you to remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke about people sometimes giving at the temple, giving in such a way, even large amounts, so they would be seen by men and praised by men. So even doing something like that, you could be doing it for the wrong motive. And then he mentions, as most translations read, his body to be burned, or again as the NIV says, give over my body to hardship that I may boast. And it's probably more broad like that. Whatever you do, whatever type of sufferings, whatever type of hardships you go through as a Christian. And then later on, it may be giving over your body to be burned. Being a martyr that way. I mean, I think of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. They would rather die than give up their convictions. And so Paul's talking about here somebody who would either face suffering or hardships or maybe even martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. But again, if you did that, to call attention to yourself, it wouldn't be worth anything. Folks, when you look at these first three verses, it is a very impressive list. And yet Paul mentions there's one thing that is absolutely indispensable to all of these things happening. And what is that one indispensable motive? It's love. It's love. It's love that God recognizes. It's love that gives meaning to all of life and all that we do. And the word here is agape love, that self-giving type love. The type of love of John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. An agape love, a sacrificial, self-giving type love for the sake of others. That's what matters most. Again, that's the type of love that Jesus said would cause the world to sit up and take notice and say, you know something, those folks down there at that church, they really do know Jesus and love Him the way they love others. You know, we could probably say it's the lack of agape love that's probably hurt the church down through the centuries more than any other single thing. Now, before we move on, let's bring these verses down even more to where we live today. You can go to church every single Sunday. You can be faithful at church every single Sunday and it's a big fat zero if you're not filled with love you can tithe you can give above the tithe but it is a big fat zero if you're not doing it out of love You can spend four or five days a week volunteering for the church or some other kind of charitable organization or maybe serving at the hospital or a nursing home. You can spend most of your life doing things like that. But if it's not done with love as the motive, again, it's a big fat zero. If you're a musician or a speaker and can play or sing or speak with the greatest of effectiveness in the church but you don't have agape love as the motive, then again it's a big fat zero. Again, he's telling the church there at Corinth that agape love has got to be the driving motivation behind everything that we do. You know, there are radical Muslim terrorists in the world today who because of their religion, they might strap a bomb onto themselves and walk into a marketplace and kill themselves along with 30 other people. They've got religion. It's not that they don't have religion. It's a misguided religion and they'll sacrifice for it to the point of losing their life. But they certainly don't have agape love for others. You can do all sorts of church stuff, all sorts of religious stuff and yet if you're, you're grouchy and hateful and critical and unkind and uncaring Paul is basically saying your religion is worthless and it's in vain. You've missed something critical along the way. Now let me pause here a minute and ask a question. Is love all that matters? Sometimes I hear that today. You can be in a discussion over doctrine, over certain difficult matters going on in society, and people might disagree, and then somebody speaks up and says, Folks, none of that matters. All that matters is love. Well, again, does the church need to do a better job today of love? Absolutely. But is love really all that matters? No. Because even in this very letter, if we were to turn over to chapter 15, Paul lambasts those who were teaching against the resurrection of Jesus. And he explained how important it is to embrace the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. You see folks, truth matters. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, He said, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus called God's word truth. And He said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If love is all that matters, then we could ask, why do we have any instruction in the Bible at all? Why? Why do we even have a Bible? I mean, if love is all that matters we don't really need anything taught in the Bible. We need love and truth. Love and truth. The context of Corinthians here is they were doing some of these gifts in the body. They were doing certain things in the body. All of these problems they were having at Corinth was demonstrating that the one thing they did not have was love. And so it's in that context that he addresses these words here. Well, secondly, I want you to see the virtues of love. Read with me again verses 4 and following. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Here we see the nature of true love. There's a lot of cheap imitations out there today, aren't there? Lots of cheap imitations. Let's talk a minute about some of these. Let's talk about marriage a minute. Guys, you ready to have your toes stepped on? Now, again, Paul's talking a lot more here. He's talking about a lot more than marriage here. He's talking about love in general. Between members in the body of Christ, but let's let's take marriage just for an example of how we ought to be practicing the type of love he's discussing here. I mean, after all, Valentine's Day married couples celebrate Valentine's Day. The sexual promiscuity you see displayed on your TV today is not true; it's a cheap imitation. The explosion of couples living together today without the covenant commitment of marriage, it's a cheap imitation. Teenagers playing grown-up, playing house before their time, and having sex with one another outside of marriage, that's not true love. That's a cheap imitation. There was a trend that started, I guess, about 20 years ago that blew my mind. I've not heard much on it lately. People would talk about starter marriages. In fact, there was a journalist in 2002 who wrote a book on this. Now, you know what starter marriages are, right? It's kind of like a young couple with a starter home. You assume they're only going to be in that starter home for a couple of years and then they're going to move up to something better. Well, the thought behind a starter marriage is that you go ahead, you just get married, get some experience under your belt, never assuming that that marriage is going to last. That's just a starter marriage to get you in practice for the real thing. But you go into that starter marriage with the idea this is only going to last a short amount of time and then after we got the practice that we want and we learn from mistakes, then we'll divorce and we'll go find who we really want to marry. That was the concept behind it. That's a cheap imitation. I think the reason we're not hearing as much about starter marriages anymore is probably because so many have just given up on marriage altogether. They're bypassing marriage and just moving in together. I don't know if you've been reading lately, but in the past couple of years, they've been talking about how marriage, especially in America, but really all over the world, marriage trends are, are way, way down. Time Magazine recently did a did an article on this and they were looking at this and they were looking now at how marriage is viewed in such a fluid way in society and how now it's becoming just about everything and they, they interviewed people up through age 34 and this is not to pick on, on younger people it's just to help us to see in the church how, how ideas out in society today are shifting so much and some of the challenges that we've got ahead of us but in this Time Magazine article and surveys they did they came out with different models that are being promoted now of marriage there's now the presidential model of marriage you know what that is right you go into it for four years at the end of four years you can re-up for another four years but at the end of eight years one way or another it's done and you move on the presidential model Then almost half of younger generations, uh, 43%, want a beta-tested marriage. The marriage union can either be formalized or dissolved after two years with little or no paperwork. In fact, in 2011, Mexico City unsuccessfully proposed laws for a beta-tested marriage of this nature. Now, fortunately, there was a healthy number of millennials, almost one-third, who said that marriage ought to be for life, and they'll even go further than that. They said that in society, there ought to even be laws making divorces illegal. On the other hand, there's also support for a Mormon style marriage, though that was not their name for it. You have different spouses at the same time for different purposes. A marriage might be one man, three women, one woman, three men, two men, two women, two men, six women. It might be your, your group, whoever hangs out in your group, maybe a dozen of you. And, and they just won't, hey, why can't we all just be in a group marriage together and everybody brings something different to the table and everybody has a different purpose for being, for being in the marriage. And just make the combinations of who's involved, whatever you want the combination to be. It doesn't matter and it doesn't matter the number. That, that the fluid type model. And then finally, there's a real estate model. Just like we have loans today. Five-year loans, seven-year loan, ten-year loan, 15-year loan, 30-year loan. You go into marriages, you, you, you get yourself a five-year marriage. Or you get a 15-year marriage or a 30-year marriage if you really want to go for the long haul. But again, it's like, it's like a financial contract. At the end of that, it's simply dissolved. It goes away. It's no more. And that's what some people are wanting. And along with all of these models, they're saying they want the paperwork and the lawyers and everything to go away so that at the end of these models, it's just dissolved, it's done. There's no fuss about it. Folks, these are some of the attitudes out there about marriage. Can I remind our young people that there are a lot of cheap imitations out there? You can't improve on God's model. God's model is one man, one woman for life. Amen? Amen. And some people say Jesus didn't really talk about this, He didn't talk about love and marriage. Yes, He did. Read, for instance, Matthew 19. When he was asked about it, what he felt about marriage, what did Jesus do? Jesus carried people back to God's model set down in Genesis chapter 2. And he set that down as the model, God's standard for marriage. Paul wants us to see what the real thing is in life. The real thing is not anything we want it to be. It's not just some kind of feeling. It's not an emotional wave that might hit you today. It might not. It might be present today, gone tomorrow. It's nothing like that. God's standard is what He's laying down right here. And let's not forget that God's standard for love is even towards those who don't love us back. You see, we all want God to love us regardless of what we do, right? Regardless of what I do, whether I deserve it or whether I don't deserve it. What do I want God to do? I want God to love me. We all do, right? We want God to love us regardless. But then we'll turn around with people and we'll want people to have to deserve our love or to be worthy of it. And Jesus told his disciples, we've got to do better than that. He said, the Pharisees can do stuff like that. You know, you pat me on the back, I'll pat you on the back. You love me, I'll love you in return. Jesus said, no, we've got to do better than that. We've even got to love those who hate us. We've got to love those who despise us and use us. We've got to reach out to them and practice this kind of love, even if nobody understands it, because that's what's going to get the world's attention about Christian love if all we're doing is loving people who love us back and treating people good who treat us good you know what that doesn't take any kind of supernatural presence in our life to do that everybody in the world does that every day But if your love is going to go that extra mile of even loving those who don't deserve it or don't love you back or don't treat you kindly, guess what? That's something you're only going to be able to effectively do from the heart as Jesus does it through you. Amen? Well, what's Paul say about all these virtues? He says love is patient. Love has the capacity to endure tough times. The word he uses here is a word that deals almost exclusively with being patient towards people, not just circumstances, but people. being patient with people and being long-suffering towards people. True love endures with people despite all of the hangups they come with, because guess what? You've got your hang-ups, and I got my hang-ups too. Right? We're to be patient and long-suffering with others. Because you know what? A lot of times people come with a lot of baggage, don't they? The Bible says that true love will be patient. It will endure. It will suffer long with people. And you know what this is modeled on? It's modeled on God's patience. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. So our long-suffering and patience with people is because God, who is supposed to be in us through the power and presence of His Holy Spirit, He's long-suffering and patient. It's not that we're just patient and long-suffering because we had a good night's sleep last night, but it's because God is in us. And then he goes on here to say love is kind. This is the positive side of patience. It not only endures, but it responds with kindness. It returns kindness when the flesh wants to respond with something else. Now be honest. Has anybody done anything to you recently? You'd love to get in the flesh and respond to them in some vindictive way. Has has anybody ever had that experience? But what's, what's the scripture say here? You don't do that. You respond with kindness instead. You want to freak somebody out? Who's mistreated you or said something bad to you You respond to them with kindness And they're not going to know what to do with it You know I might be talking to some couples here this morning In your marriage there needs to be a little bit of kindness Then he goes on to say love's not jealous Or it doesn't envy It's not displeased over the successes of others. You know, sometimes we can hate it when something good happens to somebody else and yet it hasn't happened to us. And we resent that. The Bible says love is not like that. We're to be happy for others and we're to want good for them. And we're to love it when they get good, when they have successes. We're not to envy, we're not to be jealous. You know, this is one that can come out in the church. Maybe somebody can't teach like somebody else can. Somebody can't sing or play like somebody else can. And, and so we're, there's jealousy even. We're not to be like that. You know, even ministers can be that way. How many did you have in attendance yesterday? What was your Lottie Moon offering? What's your budget offering? And there's all this boasting... I mean, you ought to hear some of the boasting sometimes in these minister's meetings. And that really bugs some guys. Jealous because that might not be happening in their ministry. And yet, they might even be more faithful than where it is happening. We're not to envy or be jealous. He goes on to say, love does not brag. The Corinthians were bragging over all of their abilities. They were they were building up their abilities, their spiritual gifts. And they were downplaying others and they were causing division in the body because they were claiming that the church needed them more than the church needed Brother Joe over here with his gift. Can you imagine that in a church? People were actually walking around in the Corinthian church boasting that the church needed them more than it needed somebody else. You know, Paul says elsewhere, if there's going to be any boasting in the church, let us boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the only one we boast in. And boasting can also be like that, boasting and bragging that one-upmanship game, right? Somebody tells a story and some some people, they've always got to have a better story to tell. They've got to have a better experience. They've always got to go at least one up on everybody else. Bragging what they've done or what's happened to them. Again, Paul says, that's not true love. He goes on to say here, love does not act unbecomingly or rude. Folks, I have seen spouses, I have been with some couples before out at dinner or something and the way one would tear down the other one or say something and you sit there and think this ought not to be this way. That, that out in public even what they would say about their spouse. Paul says that's not love. We're not to act unbecomingly or rude. He goes on to say, love is not self-seeking. Agape love by its very nature is giving. Sometimes groups groups of people in churches are are after only what their group can get. They're self-seeking. It's a what's in it for me type mentality. Oh, I want my group, my class to have the best of everything at the church. We want that room. Well, so-and-so's got that room now. We'll kick them out. We want that room. You want to see a grown man sometimes act like a two-year-old toddler in the nursery? Just move his Sunday school class. We want that place. Well, somebody else needs it more. I want it. Self-seeking. He goes on to say, love is not easily provoked. You know, a lot of people hide behind being in a bad mood when in reality they just may not be spiritually right. They blow up. They're easily angered. That's not just an emotional problem. That's a spiritual problem. You get in a church meeting, something doesn't go their way, they storm out. Nobody should ever have to walk on eggshells around you or me. That's not love. Then Paul says, no record of wrongs being kept. Now here's another marriage killer, right? I remember when you came home late on Valentine's Day 22 years ago. And it's bugged me ever since. I've not said anything till now, but I've never forgotten that. Keeping a record of wrongs. Folks, if God kept a record of wrongs to hold against us, we'd all be in trouble. But you know... God and His love for us in Christ, He washes all of that away and covers it. Amen? He goes on to say, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Think about that. True love loves truth. You can't have true love where somebody doesn't even want to consider the truth. And then he says, love bears all things. Has the idea of protecting or covering, covering others' mistakes. I think of Noah's son who who saw him drunk and naked and wanted to make a big deal out of it. But remember what the other brothers did? They covered their father's nakedness. There are some people, when somebody does something wrong, they want to advertise it to everybody. Did you hear what so-and-so did? And you know, sometimes in church we can even cloak that behind. Did you hear about somebody, so-and-so, what they did? Oh, don't tell anybody, just pray for them. Do you love to point out the shortcomings and faults of everybody around you? Do you just thrive off of that? You just love it when somebody messes up you're able to point it out? And criticize? Paul says here, that's not how true godlike love acts, agape love. You're trying to help people, you try to cover some of their mistakes, some of their wrongdoings. I'm not saying you make excuses for it. You just don't want them to be put on the spot in such a way and look bad. You want to you want to cover their shortcomings and help them. And then he says, love believes all things. This refers to not always looking for the worst in people. Not being so critical about everything. You're willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. Somebody says, you said this or did this. The other person says, yes, I did say that, but that's not what I meant. You took that in the wrong way. You took it a bad way. I meant it this way. You all say, okay, I'm going to take you at your word. You meant it in a good way. I hope you do that. Love believes all things. Folks, when you look at when you look at what Paul is saying here, this list that begins in verse 8 and following, or excuse me, verse 4 and following, what love is like, the true nature of it. When you look at this, I can't think of a time in our lives, a time in our society where we needed stuff like this any more than we need today. People continue to talk to me and show me things that's on social media and what some Christians are even saying about other Christians and all the hate and division that's going out there in society. And even pastors are saying in their churches, they've never in their whole ministry seen anything like what's been going on this past year. Everybody's at everybody's throat about everything. And I think Paul would say, would you just take a time out and go back and read 1 Corinthians 13? This right here never goes out of style. This is God's Word. His Spirit-breathed, inspired Word. And it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never goes out of style. And I think in society today... This is a chapter that we've forgotten and we need to get back to. Then, the conclusion of the matter, thirdly, and I'm just going to be brief here. He talks about the preeminence of love. He says for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when completeness comes what is in part disappears. When I was a child I talked like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child when I became a man I put away the ways of childhood behind me for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I am fully known and now these three remain faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love what's Paul talking about here what what does it mean when he talks about the, the perfect coming and gifts being done away what's he speaking of here Some would say the Bible wasn't complete yet. And so, when Scripture was completed, then all the gifts would be done away with because the complete Scripture, we don't need all these other gifts. That might sound wrong on the surface, but that's not what Paul is saying. We still need gifts in the church, practiced in the church for the sake of the body of Christ. Others feel like what he means by the perfect coming is that when the Corinthians finally grow up and finally practice love, then all the other gifts he's told about won't be needed. Because love will supersede all the gifts. Again, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the text itself tells us what Paul's saying. In, In verse 12 he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we'll see face to face. I think he's speaking of when we get to heaven. Love will never go out of style. All of the gifts that are given to the church for the reaching of a lost and dying world will one day be done away with. When we get to heaven, there won't be the need for prophecy or any of the other gifts. And Paul gives two illustrations to describe that. Childhood versus manhood. What childhood is to manhood, this present age is to the age to come. All the things children do as children, men don't do. Men put away childish things. When we get to heaven, many of the things the church needs now, we won't need them. And then mirrors, looking in the mirror, but then face to face. The mirrors of that day were polished metals. They were flawed. Some of them gave just a dim reflection. And that's descriptive of this age. Now we only see dimly or partially. But in heaven we will see face to face. There will be no encumbrances. But one thing that will never go out of style, even in heaven, is love. So folks, what is Paul telling the Corinthians? If this is how it's going to be in heaven one day, Christians ought to be living right now in the present by standards that are going to dictate that age. We need to come out from the world and be separate from the world. And there's not a single way you and I can think of where that would be more powerful than what he's talking about right here in 1 Corinthians 13. When you see how the world practices love and their cheap imitations and how they love those who love them back and all that kind This right here is a way that you and I can stand out as the body of Christ and be salt and light in a lost and dying world. That we can show the world a better way to love. We can show the world God's way to love. And that's what we're to do. think about this too don't let this escape you love is something anybody can do love is something anybody can do you know what we found out last week one thing we found out last week not not everybody can be a quarterback like tom brady right not everybody in the world can be a quarterback like Tom Brady. Not, e- not everybody in the church can play an instrument like these musicians up here on the platform. Not everybody can do that. You don't want to hear me play. But you know what everybody can do? Everybody can practice the Christ-like love. If you're in Christ, you can practice the Christ-like love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Because you know what? We've got a resource the world doesn't have and that's the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Don't say, I can't do that, Pastor. Yes, you can. Because God can do it in and through you. Amen? Would you bow with me, please? I want to ask you this morning, how's your love life? If you took this passage right here and laid it down on top of your life and put your life up against it, would there be similarities? Think about that. Think about that this week. Putting this passage down over top of your life. Is there a stark contrast? or similarities what things in these list here did do you struggle with need to pray about do you need to ask somebody forgiveness for not showing them love is love your motive for everything you do in ministry in business in marriage and family Or are you all about yourself? Maybe you need to go to your family and apologize first. But most importantly, do you know the greatest love of all? And that's Jesus. Because again, everything we read in 1 Corinthians 13, He does perfectly. Do you have Him in your heart? You can say, Lord, I struggle with these things, but you're in my life. And so would you do these things in and through me? I can't do them without you. I need you in my life. Father, on this day when we celebrate love, help us to look at our lives to see if we reflect The love and the generosity and the patience and kindness of Jesus? Or does the world look at us and see no difference at all? God forgive us if that's what they see. It is my prayer that when people look at us, they would be able to say there is something different about him or her. I see a nature in him or her that I don't see in anybody else in the classroom or in anybody else in the office or the the neighborhood. I see something in him. I see something in her that I need. God, may we display your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?